Let's uh, take a moment just to welcome our, uh, the rest of our church in Carpinteria and in Ventura. Let's give them some love as they're meeting with us today. And turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 20 through 22. The title of this message is called The What, Who, Where, Why, and How of the Church. Some questions that we tend to ask ourselves in relation to why we gather and what we do when we scatter. I believe that Paul answers all of those questions in the verses that we're going to be in. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 through 22. Paul says this. He says, Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together with him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is your word. Spoke through the prophets and through the apostles about what you are going to be doing in our time. God, we sit before you helpless feeling even naked in and of ourselves. Lord, we can do nothing apart from Christ. And we are constantly proving it by our own sin, by our own brokenness. By the things that we do not rightly. By the ways that we've fallen, by the ways that we stumble. We can't even put a Sunday morning together rightly. And yet, Lord, our hope is in you, Christ. Our hope is in you and we pray that during this morning as we open up your word you would remind us that you are on mission in our midst and in this world and not even the gates of hell can stop you from doing what you are going to accomplish. And I pray that that would give us great excitement, Lord. I pray that you would awaken our hearts to see what you are already doing in the world as your kingdom expands before our very eyes. I pray that you would give us a sense of purpose, a sense of calling, and a sense of mission. I pray that you would do this by the presence of your Holy Spirit in our midst. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The what, the who, the where, the why, and the how of the church. If you're sitting in this room and you maybe are not a part of this community, you're just visiting. Perhaps you feel yourself a little disillusioned, if you were to be quite honest, with the church, with religion, with anything that has this sense of being organized. Perhaps it's not Jesus that you have a problem with. Maybe it's just all of his people. I think this sermon is for you. Or maybe you're different. Maybe you are a part of you you love being a part of it, but if you were to be honest with yourself, you're sitting bored in the pews, so to speak, without a sense of purpose. You know that for an hour or two hours on Sunday you come and you are a part of this very loud, exuberant thing that happens, but you're not quite sure what to make of Monday through Saturday. I think this sermon is for you. Maybe you're not either of those. Maybe you love coming to church, so to speak, on Sunday morning, but you come really for the coffee. 
I think this sermon is for you. If you find yourself here, maybe just to give it one more shot, asking yourself, what in the world is the church all about? I think this is for you. And the answer to that question is manifold. Depends on who you ask. What is the church all about? If you were to ask young people, you'd get a a mixed response. According to the research, 59% of young people with a Christian background have at some point dropped out of regular attendance in the church. And it's for a number of different reasons. According to David Kinneman in his recent research, it's for reasons that the church is too shallow or the church seems to be repressive of them or the church is exclusive of other people or the church is overprotective. If you ask young adults in the church today what they think the church is all about, they would give these answers. It's overprotective, it's shallow, it's repressive, it's exclusive. But if you were to go outside of the church to ask the same age group, they would have a totally different litany of other answers. They would say uh, 91% of young adults that are unchurched would say the church is anti-homosexual. 87% of young adults outside of the church would say, you guys are hypocritical. 81% of young adults outside the church would say, the church is judgmental. So if you want just a, a quick summary of what young adults view the church to be, perhaps some of them would say, it seems like an isolated, exclusive, judgmental subculture. Perhaps those of you who are older... would look at all of those stats and be like, what do I care about what the young people think about the church? Young people with their skinny jeans and their ballet flats. (laughs) They haven't been where I've been. They haven't gone through life. They haven't had kids. I'll tell you that much. If they had kids, they'd understand. They haven't experienced what I've experienced in my experience. And that's true. And brothers and sisters in the Lord who have all of that experience, that's why we need you. Young people who are passionate about Christ need older generations who have walked with Christ and failed miserably in areas. And by the grace of God have been lifted up and have continued to walk and have experienced what it was like to walk with Christ in the real world and in real experiences. They need you to come alongside them because there are millions of people, passionate young people, who want somebody older to look up to. And you, being older disciples of Jesus Christ, you want to make sure the legacy that you leave them is directly aligned with God's mission. We need you. And you're not quite off the hook either. Because long before young people were looking at the church going, I don't know why I need that, you were saying the same thing in your youth. 41% of baby boomers are unchurched, struggling with the same disconnect with church that younger people are. Young people might listen to that and say, well, what do I care? (laughs) All of those things that you're saying about the way that I feel is true. I'm not a part of that. I, it's not a, I don't have a problem, say, with Jesus. I don't have a problem with spirituality. It's this organization. It's this assembly. It's this community thing. That's what I have a problem with. I don't know why you're trying to persuade me or why I should care about the church today. 
to you, I would say, it's probably because deep down inside, you want your life to count. And God's primary instrument for counting in the world is the church. God's primary instrument for expanding his kingdom is the church. And for some of you young people, that rubs you the wrong way. And it's probably, if it's rubbing any of you the wrong way, probably due to the fact that we have a skewed understanding of what the church is. And I believe that if we look at the scriptures and realign our perception of what church is and what God's purpose for church is, we will regain our God-given purpose on mission with God and for God. And Paul seems to want to remind us of God's ancient purpose that existed far before any of us because he keeps referring back to the First Testament, using allusions to the temple and to the house of God. In fact, temple occurs 117 times in the New Testament. Even as Paul and Peter and Jesus are speaking about the assembly of God, about the church, they're constantly using allusions and analogies to the temple of God. That ancient building in which the presence of God dwelled. That where if you wanted to taste and see that the Lord is is good, you had to go to a certain place and a certain area where God in his glory fell. And Paul, speaking of the church, is constantly alluding to the temple. But he uses two different words to speak of it. When we read in English, we just read temple. But Paul uses two different words in the Greek to denote the temple. One of them is the, the Greek word heron. Heron. He's always using this word to speak of the general area of the temple. It'd be like if you were to speak of Disneyland. Well, what do you mean by Disneyland? Do you mean actual Disneyland or do you mean California Adventure? Recently I spoke to this college student who was like, Hey, yeah, my job is sending me to Disneyland today. And I get to be there for hours just with a bunch of high school students. And I'm all oh, sick. California Adventure or the actual park? And he's all, oh, I'm the bus driver, so I'll be in the parking lot. But I'll be at Disneyland, man. When Paul speaks of Haran, he speaks of the entire sacred area. So he's speaking of the court of the Gentiles. Remember, we spoke about that last week. But he's also speaking about the court of women. He's speaking about the court of Israel. He's speaking about the corridors and the parking lot, so to speak. He's just using this broad stroke, this generic term to speak of everything. But when he gets really crazy... When he gets really nuts, he uses a different term to speak of the temple called veos. And this word is used to denote the place, not the parking lot, so to speak, not the hallways and the byways, but that little area in the temple where God's presence dwelled. Specifically, the Holy of Holies. In the Holy of Holies where the high priest himself, by himself, one time in the year, would step into this place for a certain amount of time to offer sacrifice for the people of God. That was where the presence, the Shekinah glory of God, as the Hebrews denoted, would fall in that place and the glory of God was felt in all of its worth and in all of its beauty. And around the Holy of Holies was what was called the Holy Place. And this, throughout the year, was where most of the priestly foot traffic occurred. 
If you were a priest, if you were a minister of God, that's where you spent most of your time. And there would have been on that table a piece of showbread where they would have had that bread out, this food that would denote the, uh, the sustenance of God. And they would have this incense that would be burning, this tangible reminder of the presence of God. And they would have this candle, this lampstand that would give them a tangible reminder of the presence and the light of God in that place. And this was where most of the foot traffic would have occurred for the priests. And when Paul says in verse 21, we are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple, he is literally saying, we are becoming a holy veos. We are becoming the holy place of God. A place for God to dwell. So perhaps we should be rephrasing our question to be instead, what is the church to who is the church? Because it is no longer a temple with four walls and rafters. It's no longer rebar. It's no longer carpets. It's no longer things that we walk on. It's not this outward exterior. All of a sudden, somehow, mystically, God resides in a community of people in a real way. Who is the church? We are. The people in whom God dwells Together, Paul says in verse 20, we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The cornerstone is Christ himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple, veos for the Lord, made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. And so intimately, so intimately does God dwell in us that we're able to say, even when we leave the building. That when we are in the building, yes, he dwells together in us and with us. But even when we scatter, he is somehow in us and with us. And so what happens when we gather? When we get together on a Sunday morning. We do things that represent, as the priests would have done, the presence of the living God. We open up the scriptures because we believe that God is going to speak to us. As the priests would in days of old. We celebrate baptism because we believe that is exalting the name of God, representing a new man and a new woman emerging out of the dark water of our sin and shame. We sing songs declaring and praising what Christ has done for us. We take communion. What are we doing? We're taking the showbread and now we're ripping it in half, representing what happened to Christ's body in order to bring us together. We're drinking of the cup, reminding that his blood was spilt to purchase for himself the church, and we live generous lives. We give of our resources because Christ first gave to us. And we've kind of got that down pretty well. We know what happens on a Sunday morning. We're American Christians, that's what we do. 9 o'clock, show up at church. 10 o'clock, worship. 12, break for lunch. It's Monday through Saturday that we sometimes have a hard time wrapping our heads around. But God says that you are still the church even when you disperse. And God's presence dwells with you as in the holy place of old. Even when you're in your job. Even when you're in your place of recreation. He dwells in us when we gather together, but when we scatter, he dwells in us in our context. Where you live, your neighborhood, your place of residence, your place of employment, the place that you work, 
your normal working relationships, the place that you play, your racquetball recreation, where you go swimming, when you play football, when you hang out with the guys, when you hang out with the girls, where you go to study, where you go wherever, whatever it is that you do, the church is always the people of God. We never cease to be the temple where God's spirit dwells in some mystical way that we can barely understand when we gather and when we scatter. Now, if we can understand that, we can understand the mission of God much more clearly. But the way we live our lives is going to depend on our perspective of what God's church is. It's going to depend on our transition from the church is a what to the church is a who. For example, if we continue to have those old perceptions, for us, the church will be nothing more than a building. That's immediately where we default. And we see this reflected in the way we speak, right? What are you doing today? I'm going to church. How was church today? Oh, it was awesome. What are you going to do? I think after church, I'm going to go eat lunch. Then I'm going to go back to church again. How was church? It was great. You should come with me to church. But if the church is a who, then to say I'm going to church makes about as much sense as a football bat. Not very much. I make about as much sense as a football bat. (laughs) Sometimes our perception defaults to the church being a building. But if we don't think of it as a building, sometimes our church defaults, uh, our perception of the church defaults to the church is the clergy. How many of us think of that? The church is the group of staff members that get paid to do the work of God, and we come to watch them in the building that is the church. Or sometimes our default perspective and perception of the church is that it's a litany of programs. The church is the worship ministry. The church is the preaching. The church is uh, the ministry to women. The church is the men's ministry. The church is calm groups. All of those things are good. The building isn't bad. I kind of like it. The clergy isn't bad. God calls a certain amount of leadership in the church. Programs aren't bad, but if our perception isn't corrected, we will think that the church is a building or the church is a bunch of professional leaders or the church is programs. And once we start to have that perception, if we start to think of the church as being nothing more than a building, we'll develop a mentality that says that we are called to come to it instead of go. The church is a place that we come to instead of something that we are and we go out to be. If we think of the church as just a bunch of clergy, we will rely on a few of those professionals instead of equipping all of us as the priesthood of the saints. So if we think of the church as a building, we will come instead of go. We'll lose our sense of sentness, in other words. If we think of the church as just a bunch of professional staff members, we'll rely on a few instead of equipping all of us. In fact, we'll lose our sense of ownership. 
And if we think of the church as just a litany of different programs, we will turn to those programs instead of taking the ownership and investing ourselves into the life of other people in our normal places of relationship. In other words, we'll lose our sense of cost, that Christianity actually is a cost in which we engage in to follow after Jesus. So what happens when we have the wrong perception of church? If we think of it as a building or a bunch of clergy or programs, we will lose our sense of sentness. We will lose our sense of ownership. We will lose our sense of cost. Throw that in a blender and see if it'll blend. Unfortunately, it does. It comes out as stagnancy. What happens when we unhinge our perception of what the church is according to God? We become stagnant. 2007, I had the opportunity to go to Israel um, for this tour with a bunch of believers studying the Bible, and we were there for, I think, about two weeks. And after about a week of walking around and touring the land and seeing where Jesus walked, we were just really tired, so we took this, this day off to just relax and enjoy. And this one particular day, we, we took a bunch of the group to the Dead Sea, And on my way to the Dead Sea, as I was coming out of my room, stopped by a McDonald's, believe it or not, there's a McDonald's by the Dead Sea in the middle of nowhere, (laughs) ate a sandwich, put on my board shorts, grabbed a towel, walked down to the Dead Sea because I had heard stories about this little pond. Number one, that you could float on it. That was, it was buoyant enough that you could just float in the middle of it. And so I put on my board shorts. I ran into the lake. It was about eight o'clock at night. The, dar- the darkness was falling and the, the lake seemed to glow with this green glowy look that I wasn't really <laughs> comfortable with entirely, but I wanted to go into the Dead Sea. And the thing about the Dead Sea is it's extremely salty. It's been said that it's about four times more salty than a normal ocean, which is salty enough. But this is where you get the buoyancy. This is where you're able to float on it. And I wanted to float. I don't like water particularly. I don't go into it a lot. But I wanted to float. And so I just start wading into the ocean. And I'm just surrounded by a bunch of other people who are also having the same mindset. And there's a guy next to me who's just doing the backstroke. And there's this woman next to me who's just smearing salt all over over her face like it's a magic potion. And so I lay down in the, on my back, just a little, little bit afraid, but it works. It works. And I'm lying on top of the water. And it's actually so buoyant that I can't sink. And now I'm trying to do the, just the duck paddle all the way to the bottom, and it won't work. I'm floating on the water. And now I'm just getting really excited. Now I'm just doing the backstroke, and I'm like, Michael Phelps, whatever, dude, look at me. Ah! And I'm just having the time of my life. And then I get up, and I get a little creeped out. Do you know why it's called the Dead Sea? (laughs) It doesn't move. It doesn't go anywhere. It's the lowest point in that area. A lot of stuff flows into it. A lot of minerals, a lot of salt. Every stream, every river, every gutter, every rain trap... Everything in that area flows down to the lowest point in the land. So it gathers a lot of good stuff, but because it's the lowest point in the land, it has no outflow. It gathers so much salt that it cannot sustain any life at all. And as I was looking out on this very glowy, green, dark lake, I didn't see any fish. I didn't see any animals. 
I didn't see mosquitoes. I didn't see foliage. I didn't see plants. I was there by myself with nobody, no signs of life except tourists. (laughs) Smearing ourselves with salt and salt water. And this is the natural trajectory of a church that forgets its outflow. Anytime you cut off mission, whether it's with an ocean or with a church, you kill your sense of vibrancy. You kill your ability to thrive. And it doesn't matter how many resources we have. It doesn't matter how many people come to our church. It doesn't matter if the worship is exciting. And it doesn't matter if the teacher is a charismatic speaker. It doesn't matter. The moment we forget the roots of the apostolic church that set out into the culture and into society to light a fire in the non-believer, to preach the gospel, to live in the radical way that Jesus walked so that other people could be brought into the family of God. The moment we forget that, we cut off our feet. And sometimes you don't even know what's happening. You're doing the backstroke, thinking everything is fine. You get up, you look around, and you start to notice there's no life around you, except for a few tourists that come by to hear your charismatic speaker and your good worship. Underneath is deadness. And I believe that God has more for a young church like this. But we have got to recognize that the moment we stop having outflow, we kill ourselves. I don't want to be a Dead Sea church. And I know you don't either. And it's so easy to lose our sense of sentness when you don't know where you're going. (laughs) If everything in life revolves around just getting together and loving on each other for two hours and then splitting and going back to our separate lives. If It's very easy to lose our sense of sentness when you have no idea where you're going. And so the next question we ask is, where are we going? And when Paul spoke about the temple in that day, when structures were built, they always started with one stone in particular. They called it the foundation stone or the cornerstone. I recently asked a gal on staff, she's from the Ventura campus, her name's Gianna, who used to have a a background in architecture. She built some bridges in Carpinteria and designed them and some retaining walls here and there. So she has this background in what it takes to put a structure together. And I I pulled her aside and I was like, Gianna, cornerstone. It's in the Bible, I read it, but is it really, like, is it really that important? Or is it just decorative? Is it just symbolic? She's like, well, We don't really use cornerstones a lot today, but back when they were used, they were incredibly important. For example, in Jesus' day, it was the first stone that would be set by which every other stone would be placed in reference to. So it determined the direction of the entire building. If you wanted your building to face north, you better be sure that your cornerstone is facing north because everything else that gets set, every rafter, every building, every piece of mortar, every stone would be set in conjunction with that cornerstone. Not only that, not only is the direction hinged upon the direction of the cornerstone, but whether the building is level or not. If the cornerstone is not level, your entire structure will be offset. And you might not even know it. 
If the cornerstone is off just by a fraction of an inch, you might not be able to see it with a naked eye, but once the structure goes off, 20 feet down, that angle of the wall won't just be a, a fraction of an inch off, it will be perhaps several feet off or many inches off. In other words, everything is set in reference to the cornerstone. If the cornerstone is off, if we are not aligned with the cornerstone, even just a bit, we don't just we don't just shoot ourselves in the foot. We are exponentially damaged in the mission of God. We, our direction is totally placed off base. Our, our sense of being level, our sense of purpose, our sense uh, of, of uh, significance, everything is set off in direct conjunction to the cornerstone. And Paul says the cornerstone of the church is Christ Jesus himself. Everything that is based in our Christianity and in our walk and in mission must be set in conjunction in reference to Jesus. The Bible also seems to tell us that we were very off-center to begin with. In Ephesians chapter 2, we were off-center before he even found us and yet Jesus Christ put on human form. He stepped into our business. He lived in the places that we worked. He... Uh, uh, met and spoke to and, 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 and socialized with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. He lived our lives and he lived them perfectly. And we're told, just as Martin Luther would, would, would share, that he did what was called the great exchange. As he died on the cross, he did what you and I could not do. He took our sin and our shame and he put it on himself and he said to the great judge in heaven, Father, they know not what they do and I will take the brunt of their injustice. And in doing so, he traded our sin and shame for his righteousness so that we just wouldn't be forgiven. We would stand before the presence of God, free from shame and rich in righteousness, accepted, beloved, wrapped up into the family that Jesus would later call my church. And he realigns us. And he does this. Here's the why. He does this so that we can enjoy God as was originally designed from the very beginning. Back when Adam and Eve walked through the garden and God was walking among them. And when they failed to walk with him rightly. And God carried out his plan with the nation of Israel and his spirit dwelt among them. And later when the tabernacle and later after that when the temple was uh, uh, constructed and God's presence dwelled in the midst of them as a light to the nations. And now, finally, in the church of Jesus Christ, accepted by Jesus Christ, we enjoy God as was originally designed. And yet it doesn't just stop there. It's not so that we can enjoy God for ourselves. Remember, we always need outflow. It's so that we can teach other people how to do the same. In the holy place, it was said that there would be these lampstands that acted as candlelight to the people, not only in the holy place, but people who were looking in to sense and to see the presence of God in that place. In Revelation, the Apostle John, speaking on Jesus' behalf, Jesus says, the church is now the lampstand and I dwell among them. Meaning, we are the holy place of God dispersed throughout the world in our normal places of residence as a light in a dark place so that people can learn through our lives and through our way of speaking what it means to enjoy God. 
So just as Christ represents us as the high priest in the Holy of Holies to the Father, we now represent Christ to the world. You want to you know something significant to live for? How about being the lampstand of God to a world that is going south? How about being on mission with God to renew the broken and the homeless and the destitute and those who feel worthless? How about being an instrument of God in a broken world that does not know God? The church is made of us, but it's never been about us. It's always been about the chief cornerstone. And this sounds almost counterintuitive to us because to the natural way that we think of thriving in the world is to think much about ourselves. In order to get ahead, we naturally think that I must do as much as I can for myself. I love the way that John Piper puts this. He says, nobody ever goes to the Grand Canyon or the Alps and stands on the corner of such a great chasm and looks at all that God has created in all of its, its magnificence and, and, and in all of its beauty and in all of its glory and stands there and says, I am a big deal. Everybody look at me. No, we stand at the Grand Canyon, we look at the mountains, we look at the stars, and we feel so insignificant. And for some reason, it actually feels a little good. Because there's something deeply ingrained in humanity that wants to know that there's something out there that's bigger than we are. God forbid that Chris Lazo is the best thing that Chris Lazo has to live for. And in the person of Jesus Christ, we don't just see acceptance by God, but we see him saying, I will pull you into my eternal mission for the renewal of the cosmos, and you will know excitement, and you will know a better way to live, and you will know thriving like you have never even imagined possible. If we get anything right as a church, please let it be Jesus. And we've gotten a lot of things wrong. We've done a lot of silly things. We've ended up on the front page of newspapers and we've gossiped about each other and we've cut each other off on, in the parking lot and we've, we've hurt each other's feelings and we've betrayed one another and we've not thought the best about one another. We've not represented God and we've not been on mission and we've not always loved the unlovely. But if there's something that we can get right, please let it be that we are aligned with Jesus Christ who does all of those things perfectly and teaches us how to do them even though we fail often. My last question is how are we doing with that? For those of you that feel disillusioned by all of this, I want to ask you, I actually want to ask on behalf of us that you would forgive us and that we are sorry for the ways that we have not represented Jesus. And then I also want to point you to Jesus, who is actually the only real hero and champion of the story. See, if you ever become a part of a church community or a gathering of Christians, you're always going to encounter hurt and pain because church is filled with messy people who hurt each other. But we also believe that we are following a champion who, even though we fail miserably, is slowly and surely by his grace causing us to be more like him. I pray for you that you 
would get your attention not on people and the faults of the people, but engage on the perfection and the beauty of Jesus Christ and be a part of that story. Some of you are sitting bored in the pews. Can't quite make, you can't quite make sense of how Sunday connects with the rest of your week and you feel stagnant. Perhaps that's because you are living a Dead Sea Christianity. And to you, I want to say, engage in Jesus' mission wherever you happen to live. And I guarantee you on the authority of your word that if you step out in obedience to what God is already doing in the world, you will get excited about it. And you don't have to be sensational. You don't have to romanticize the mission of God. You don't have to say, I have to leave all of my stuff in Santa Barbara and carpenter inventor and I have to move to Madagascar and sell all of my stuff and then I'll live with purpose. You can do that if you want. You could also do that here. Because Jesus Christ is on mission on the coastlands of California. And I guarantee you, based on the words of Jesus Christ himself, that if you were to pour out yourself in normal relationships that already exist in your home and in your family and in your job place and in your place of recreation, if you were to just step out a little bit and regain your sense of sentness and regain your sense of cost for following Christ and regain the sense of pouring out for the, for the, the cause of Christ, you will know what it means to thrive on mission with Jesus. For those of you that are here just to consume, you just want to drink the coffee and sing the songs and hear a loud preacher and you came here for entertainment. I understand that. We live in Santa Barbara and Ventura and California for crying out loud. We know a lot about entertainment. But let's just be honest with ourselves. Aren't there better places to get entertainment than a church? I don't know if you heard of Los Angeles. Church doesn't know how to entertain, nor should we. If you want entertainment, you can just go to State Street or Telegraph or Telephone or Linden Avenue. But if it's eternal purpose that you want, if it's significance, if it's lasting meaning that you're chasing after, you have come to the right place. A gathering, not built with hands and rafters and two-by-fours, but a living, breathing organism of men and women who are broken, but have found a true champion to follow after. A champion who at this moment is renewing broken lives and broken friendships and broken relationships and broken social structures and bringing animosity between races together and bringing people groups together and renewing and giving hope to the lost and to the orphan and to the homeless And to all of you in this building and abroad in the church of Jesus Christ, I want to ask you, what would it look like if we actually believed this to be the case? If we moved beyond church being a building and church being a selected few and church being a bunch of programs and actually thought that the Spirit of God dwelt in us with resurrection power to spread the gospel in the way that we speak, in the way that we relate to each other, in forgiveness and reconciliation, and in the way that we related to the non-believer outside these walls. What would happen to the coastland if we just believed it a little bit? If we don't believe it, I think Paul gives us the answer in the last three words of the text. He's making us a part of this dwelling where God lives by His Spirit. 
if we don't believe it. I think Paul would have us understand that it's because we need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. And so as the worship team comes up and we begin to exalt Christ in word and in song, I want to invite you to do something crazy. Whether you are disillusioned, whether you are bored in the pews, whether you're just checking it out, or whether the coffee tastes bad and you want something more to stand for in your life, this is what I call on you to do. I want you to repent of your sins for the glory of God. Repent of living for things of lesser value. Run for the cross where grace and mercy are waiting to meet you and ask that the Holy Spirit would meet you in power. There are going to be prayer teams to the left and to the right. I invite you to come forward. You know the New Testament tells us that somehow when the laying of hands comes upon us and when we are anointed with oil, the Holy Spirit comes upon us in power. Not because we have some magical property in our hands. Not because vegetable oil or myrrh or frankincense or whatever it is that we use has some magical property in it. But because those things point us to a greater truth. That the Holy Spirit is what is required to open our eyes to see something greater than our own selfish lives so as we worship I want to ask that those of you that want to live for something greater than your own life would come forward ask a brother or a sister in Christ to lay hands on you and ask for a fresh filling and a fresh fire of the Holy Spirit to come upon you that your life when you look back will be something that you can say I lived it for the glory of God Heavenly Father I pray that this morning you would do just that. For those of us who can't make sense of any of this, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would come upon us and you would open our eyes to see more of Jesus. For those who have no sense of purpose, I pray that you would give us a fire in our bones that cannot be shut up. And for those of us that are consumers, I pray that you would give us something greater to live for than our own appetites. Holy Spirit, we are in desperate need of you. Thank you for all that you have already done in this local body. We ask humbly and thirstily that you would do more. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.